Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. Today, we're back for a third time with Anthony Milevsky. Anthony has built a highly successful international career financing and building early stage mining companies. What surprised me when I first met Anthony was his concern for conservation and the environment, despite his focus on extracting raw materials from the earth. His interest and passion is what we focus on in this episode. We talk decarbonization and how it will play a role in our global economy going forward. Until this conversation, I had such a small understanding of the size, scope, and potential of the carbon credit trading markets. We discussed both the regulated and voluntary markets. What I didn't realize was that there's an enormous opportunity for designer carbon credits in the voluntary markets, which companies can purchase to offset their carbon footprint. If you're looking for opportunities, then I urge you to listen in. And finally, if you haven't listened to the past episodes with Anthony, I highly recommend you start with episode 34, The Untold Story with Anthony Milevsky. Enjoy this episode. Anthony, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. I always enjoy uh, coming on and visiting. Uh, This will be another good conversation. I think so much has changed from the first interview we did to the second one, and uh, here we are on a third what I want to focus on a bit is the world of ESG and carbonization. And then I think we can get into some macros and all the things that are going on in the world of commodities and business. But probably the best is if we start with a bit of your background, because that lays the playing field for everybody to understand the, the perspectives you bring. So would you mind give us an intro to you and your corporate history? Yeah, sure. So I, funny enough, I graduated from graduate school and it was a bull market in Russia. And so, you know, I went to London and then was moved to the Moscow office of Skadden Arps and uh, was working on coal and copper and gold transactions, natural resource transactions. And it was really my first experience with natural resources, literally first job out of the gate and was put onto a bunch of metals and mining deals. And then from there, worked at an investment bank and then ultimately ended up at Firebird Management in New York, which is a hedge fund working on special situations and natural resources, and then uh, went on to be a partner at Paula Investments, which is a private equity firm in Switzerland that focuses on metals and mining. Transitioned over time into the corporate side and have served as the CEO of a couple of different companies and as an independent director and an executive director as well. So really spent my entire career looking at you know, natural resources in particular, metals and mining, and thinking about supply demand curves and, and forward curve, and, and really, you know, what are the big trends that are going to impact both supply and demand for commodities over time? I really want to get into that because I think that's interesting perspective to, to hear how you view the world and also perhaps how CEOs and those IR pros out there should be approaching and, you know, delivering their narratives and around that. But a question I have is, what got you into metals and mining? Was it just, hey, this is the first post, here you go, 
and you just got fascinated by it or was it always an interest? Well, I mean, you know, look, when you look around the room that you're sitting in right now, when our audience looks around the room, like, just take a look and what do you see? Everything in the room that you're sitting in just about is either going to be, you know, grown or mined at its kind of fundamental um, base. And so these basic elements, these mind elements are the foundation of modern life. You know, you really cannot have an iPhone without copper and tin and a bunch of other elements. You cannot have a car without hydrocarbons and palladium and platinum. You cannot have this phone call without a bunch of these metals. And so, you know, it's the most basic aspect of all of the trappings of modern life. And most people don't realize that or appreciate that. And so they go through life buying an iPhone, getting in a car, going to work, going up an elevator, not kind of thinking about where the actual fact is materials come from. And they come from mines, they come from holes in the ground. Yeah, it's just, it's, we're not living without them. So I guess that at a base level, you look and you're like, this is a place to be. Yeah, it was just fascinating because I was sort of, you know, there was that realization that without it, like nothing works. And so when you understand commodities, you can understand what's going on in the world, you know, you see a spike in copper demand. What is that? Well, right now that spike in copper demand is driven by a transition to green energy and decarbonization. You see a spike in iron ore. What does that mean? And so you know, you can actually understand the world in really kind of granular detail by understanding what's going on in the commodities markets. Yeah. Yeah. I want to get into your thoughts on where we are with this commodity cycle, where copper's at and things like that. But also I want to discuss a bit about the world of ESG and decarbonization. Why I find it interesting is when I first met you, I just kind of was like, man, here's a capitalist through and through divide and conquer. But then I started to uncover this kind of this deep interest in the natural environment and in preserving the world and conservation. And it was kind of a, there was a bit of a dichotomy there that I thought was interesting. So can we talk a bit about ESG and then decarbonization and what that looks like, and especially in this green environment? What are you seeing and what do you expect to play out here? So ESG is actually more than one thing, environmental, social, and governance. And so, you know, when you unpack that, governance can be a bunch of things, but, you know, what is the composure of your board, composition of your board? Do you have diversity? Do you have the right committees? You know, that's governance. Social, it can be, you know, about your employees. It can be, you know, the communities, if we're talking about natural resources, the communities and how you're interacting with them. And then environmental can be, once again, a range of things from, you know, what processes are you using for your beneficiation of the underlying material or, you know, what's your tailings plan? Or in the case of today's conversation, you know, what's your carbon footprint? So ESG is really about sustainability. It's been around for a long time. It's been called different things at different times. I think right now, it's finally having its moment, primarily because you have on the demand side, you have consumers demanding accountability from corporates just across the spectrum. And then on the investing side, you have the Black Rocks of the world telling the public issuers that if they don't actually adhere to ESG principles and they want to invest in them. And it's a really dynamic moment because like there is no set ESG principles. You know, you have big funds that are dictating how they see the application of ESG. You have rating agencies trying to rate people. You have scores. You know, it, we're still years away from kind of consolidating all that into one standard. But what you do have is a moment where everyone is trying to figure out what it means for their business. Now, a subset of that ESG overlay 
is decarbonization and carbon footprints and a real awakening even in the last 24 to 36 months around what it means to offset your carbon footprint. How do you calculate a carbon footprint? And while people have been aware of this for a long time, what you have is consumers saying, we care, you know, we're interested in the world we live in and we want to do something about it. And they're demanding that the places where they buy their widgets from are doing something about it. And so decarbonization has really come to the forefront. And, you know, it's a canary in the coal mine. There'd be a bunch of other kind of things in in environmental, in the ESG, the E, that would also be relevant. But when you start talking about addressing the carbon footprint, you're really talking about addressing the supply chain, addressing the processing, addressing how your executives travel. And so it's kind of a framework to think about the environmental impact of your business overall. And so it's really having its moment now. People are thinking about it. And I, I think you can't go a day without a press release from some company talking about offsetting their you know, carbon footprint and giving target dates or governments and states. And so it's a pretty exciting yeah. moment for that idea. I mean, you know, I've, I was always surprised to hear somebody like Elon Musk speak to just taxing carbon. He's like, there, there's your solution. And I know that's a very broad statement, but it's pretty fascinating to see it become more and more part of the discussion and definitely, you know, one of the cornerstones perhaps, or, or you know, a very valuable component of the E when it comes to ESG. But there's something there. There's a whole a burgeoning. And I mean, it's been around for years, right? This is, you know, I think the some of the earliest discussions of this were in the 60s and 70s with carbon cap and trade. But there's so much there, man. So I'm just going to ask a, a broad sweeping question of, can you give us a high level talking carbon and talking this, what is it seems to be a commodity industry that's starting to yeah. build up here? So I'll give the most basic explanation that generally speaking, there are two carbon markets. There's the regulated market in Europe, California, Reggie's in the Northeast. That same market exists you know, in a variety of places. China's developing that market. And that is a cap and trade market that is regulated by the government. You, know, you produce 10 widgets and under the law, you need to offset that. It's a tax. It's designed to curb emissions. In most of the schemes, speculation is allowed. You you have the European credit hitting all time highs at the moment. That's you know a little bit contentious because producers of widgets are saying, well, it's becoming too expensive to produce here. The government's retort is, well, that's kind of the point. Is if if carbon becomes expensive, you'll you'll either not do that thing or you'll change your process. So that's one market, and that's and yeah, so this is big- just cap and trade. Yeah, it's effectively cap and trade. And that is a big market, you know, to give you a kind of a sense for it. You know, I read something that Morgan Stanley trades $50 million of European credits a day. That's one bank, one credit, like just to kind of give you a sense for the liquidity in that market. And Um, and I just want to add some analogy here, like cap and trade, like in essence, cap, we're capping the amount that a producer can emit from the production of its products. And then they can go and buy and sell what effectively is, it's, it's like a, tokenized or a security that carbon that's, credit that's, is a that's security. A fair, I mean, do you know why, or do you know how Tesla makes most of its money? I don't uh, actually. Selling carbon credits. <laughs> Interestingly. Huh. Factually. Like yeah, factually they do. So yeah, you, you're right. And that market is developed. That market is liquid. I mean, it's really liquid in Europe and California. And that market is, you know, I mean, I've read where Oregon and the US is looking at it. You know, China is developing a market. So that that is a government regulated market and it is a form of a tax and it's designed to curb carbon emissions through making it cost more to emit carbon effectively, mm. right? In short. 
Now, that market is interesting, but it's, it's pretty easy to access that market. There are ETFs. I mean, frankly, if you're set up with a major bank, you can probably just go buy it over the, you know, on your interactive broker account or something, you know, depending on, on how you're set up. The more interesting market for me is the voluntary market. And that is a completely different market and it trades completely different than the regulated markets. Okay. And when you go and you buy a Delta airline ticket, an Air Canada ticket, EasyJet, British or whatever the airline is, and there's that little box at the end that says check here and for $7.95, you can offset your carbon footprint. Yeah. Or when you go to buy a package or whatever it is, whenever you see that box, those are all examples of the voluntary market. And, and what that is, is you as the consumer are volunteering to offset your carbon footprint. Or when you see a major company say, we're going to be carbon neutral by X date. Those credits are all being purchased in the voluntary market. And it's a pretty interesting thing. In my view, what's happening is, you know, the European credit, I didn't look today, but it was trading yesterday at around 50 euro a credit. And the voluntary market trades, depending on the credit at anywhere from a couple bucks to $14 a credit. So a lot less expensive in the voluntary markets. And so from my perspective, what's happening is a lot of companies out there saying, you know, if we can get ahead of this, maybe we won't be regulated and forced into some of these cap and trade programs. Mm. And instead, we can buy in the voluntary market. Now, an ancillary, a corollary to that is also consumers are demanding. I mean, like you see that consumers are actively demanding it. And I'm and willing to pay for it. And willing to pay for it. It doesn't cost anything. I mean, it, you know, offsetting your personal carbon footprint a year, you know, max, you know, Couple hundred bucks, right? Like yeah. personally, I, yours. I just want—I want to throw an example in here of a company I really like called Harbor Air out of Vancouver. I don't know if you've ever taken them. I haven't. I don't think. Oh, dude, it's a stellar experience. They'll you know buzz you across from Vancouver to Victoria or you know multiple different towns in the, the coast there. But they claim to be the world's first carbon neutral airline because they're, as I understand it now, as you're explaining putting together the voluntary carbon option. So when you go and book your ticket, you throw on, yeah, I want to cap my carbon here, if you will. And it's starting to work. Well, I'll give you an example. I'm the chairman of Nickel 28. And as far as I know, we are the first carbon neutral producing nickel mine in the world because we went into the voluntary market. We had a guy called Lyle Trenton. He, you know, he kind of went through, calculated our carbon footprint. And we offset our footprint for the year and, and have pledged to continuously do that on an annual basis. And I'll tell you huh. what I like about the voluntary market is the voluntary market has, by and large, nature-based solutions, right? Nature-based solutions are credits which are derived from things like reforestation products, excuse me, projects. Okay. And I really like that because that means you went into a forest and you, maybe you replanted it. Maybe you put in a different type of tree that was natural there. Maybe you reforested fallow, low-value farmland. You know, there's hmm. a, a whole range of, of things that that can mean, but I think what's interesting about a lot of the voluntary credits, not all of them, of course, but a lot of them are nature-based solutions that include projects where you are actually helping save the environment. And I'll tell you, Apple, with, along with Goldman Sachs, within the last 10 days, I don't know if it was last Thursday or Friday or the week before, they just put out an announcement saying that they had raised a fund to go out and put to work $300 million to offset their carbon footprint by restoring forests, hmm. right? So wow. that, that's just an example Delta Airlines recently put 30 million, three zero, into a project called Rimbaraya in Indonesia, an orangutan sanctuary, by way of yeah. example. So phenomenal. Um, so you're actually so, seeing this come together. And so what's interesting about the regulated market is 
that market is just a supply demand market that's bid up by hedge funds and corporates and all these kind of types. The voluntary market is a little more nuanced because credits trade based on vintage. In other words, the year that they were created. In a lot of cases, a company will say, well, we want to buy credits in the same year we're offsetting our footprint by way of example. Another thing is a carbon credit, a carbon unit, a metric ton of carbon is a metric ton of carbon. However, there's something called co-benefits, which is how great does this project look on our annual circular? You know, in other words, like, is it, is it going to, you know, kind of be doing something exciting and great yeah. for the environment? Like Even orangutans for... Yeah, a yeah, perfect example, right? So something like that, the credits might be $14 a credit. You know, some of the other projects, which are maybe a little less sexy, those credits might be $4 a credit. And so... So, so how do you value these? I mean, you, you say there's like a vintage to it. It's like, am I buying an old bottle of wine here, the equivalent of a carbon credit? Like this is great vintage. This forest is now 50 years old or... No, it's is there... maybe. So first of all, the answer is there are no answers. It's, it's still relatively okay. early days. But some, you know, Microsoft put out a great paper about this, which you should read. But, but some companies will say, I only want to buy credits in the year that those credits, I only want to offset my carbon footprint for 2021 with credits that were created in 2021. So what that means is the vintage year for that credit is 21 because mm -hmm. of, you know the forest grew or whatever happened in that year. And, and we're going to buy that credit and we're going to extinguish that credit. Other people say, you know what? I don't care. Credit is a credit. I'll buy any credit and I'll buy like an Indian hydro credit from 2018 and they'll pay a, you know, a couple bucks for that credit. Okay. So what is happening though is that a lot of the older credits are getting cleared out because people are blending credits. So they're buying, you know, the $14 orangutan sanctuary credit for, you know, 20%. And then they're backfilling the balance, the 80% credits with the less expensive credits with right. earlier vintages. And they so get some that, sex appeal, kind of, but then they get the bulk of what they need, the foundation of what they need from yes. like, man, this is fascinating stuff. So it's getting them. So the market's getting a lot tighter. Like I can just tell okay. you, the market is getting a lot tighter. It's developing quickly. And, and so just to kind of take you back in time here, you know, the market really got its start in terms of these voluntary credits like over 10 or 15 years ago. And there were a lot of problems in the early days because like, how do you measure carbon? Like, what's the science? And, and by the way, if I buy a credit from Tom, is it the same as a credit from Cindy? And what about, yeah. what about Julie's credit? And the answer was it was a disaster. I mean, you know, there was fraud. I mean, all, everything happened that you can imagine that could happen in that kind of a market. And so what has developed over time is a series of standards. And like I'll give Vera as an example of a standard, but there's one called Gold Standard, and there's a bunch of other ones that are under development. And so what happens is you register your credit with said organization. And then as a buyer of those credits, you can decide what your standard is going to be, like say Vera or whatever. Well, I mean, there's a handful of them. And you know they've done work. You're going to do your own work as well, but they've done work and said, well, here are kind of the standards. They've looked at the project. You know, someone goes annually and checks up on the project. And in that way, you kind of know what you're getting. And it's kind of the maturation of the industry. And then, by the way, it's going to continue to mature. I'm aware of any number of projects out there about people who are trying to create more dynamic markets in these credits. But it's definitely coming of age as these standards have become more transparent and I think higher quality you're seeing the corporates feel more comfortable and deciding, well, this standard kind of suits what we're doing and this standard doesn't. And so that's all been an evolution over the last 10 or 15 years that has kind of coalesced into this moment now 
where everybody's in. I mean, just Google it, you know, Google any uh, major company and I'm sure that they have decarbonization goals over the next five, 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that, if not most of that goal is going to come out of the voluntary market. And so from my perspective, the most interesting market I've ever seen is the voluntary carbon market. I mean, just the potential, the liquidity, every aspect of it is going to be fascinating. And people are really going to innovate and do interesting things in these markets. And you know what I like to say is it's using capital market solutions to save the environment. So you're actually you know, making yeah, yeah. money and you're saving the environment, which is Social pretty, pretty cool. Yeah, exactly. So that's great. So let's go back to nickel 28, man. What you said there about becoming carbon neutral is one of the first nickel or the only nickel company out there who's doing this. That's pretty phenomenal. But what was the process? You engaged somebody to come and say, hey, here's what you got to do. And well, so wait, this, there's a guy. Yeah, there's a guy. Paint the picture. Um, yeah. So there's a guy called Lyle Trent. He's a consultant out of Vancouver. Great guy, really passionate about carbon. He runs a consultancy and you basically you engage him and he'll give you a a list of whatever, hundred questions, you know, and you go back and forth, your CFO, everyone goes back and forth and you supply this guy with all this information. And, you know, that takes as long as it takes and the complexity of your business would drive how long that takes. And this is specifically from kind of materials. There'd be other consultants for like a retail business and so on. So he comes back to you and I'm just making up a number now. He says that your carbon footprint is 10 units. It's not a number, but like, that's what he says, right? Just for the sake of argument. So then what you do is from there, you go to a company like Blue Source or Carbon Advisors or you know, a company like that. And you say, you know, we would like to purchase 10 units of carbon. And they'll ask you questions. They say, well, okay, is that annual? Or is that, tell us a little bit about that. You say, you know what? My consultant tells me that I utilize, I need to offset 10 units of carbon annually for the foreseeable future. So you say, I want to buy 10 units. So then they'll give you a range of projects. They'll say, well, on the lower end, you got some, some hydro projects in India. On the high end, you've got some orangutan sanctuaries in Indonesia. What are you thinking about? And you kind of say, oh, I'll take a little of this and a little of that. And then you sign a, an environmental commodities purchase agreement. Mm. You buy it. And this is where it gets interesting. So now you've bought the credits, which are registered on Vera or whoever they're registered on. And you have not offset your carbon footprint yet, though. Because you don't offset your carbon footprint until you extinguish the credits. And right. So, so you actually if, have to get rid of them. You have think to think about it. If I buy, like let's say I buy my 10 units, I don't buy anything. I just own these units. Maybe the market goes up and I sell them on. Maybe I'm speculating, right? Mm. Who knows? So what happens is then you extinguish the credits. And so you, you actually on Vera, you can say nickel 28 extinguishes 10 units for a 2021 carbon footprint. And then if anyone goes and looks at those credits, because now you put out a press release, we've just extinguished these credits, mm. you can go on there and they can verify that in fact, you've done that. Now you don't have to do that. You have to extinguish them in order to say that you've offset your footprint. But you know, I would think most groups would actually write in the note as it were on the extinguished credit that you've done it to offset your 21 vintage right. nickel mining credits. Because that, that just would make sense. So extinguishing being the word in the industry, as I understand, means like effectively they're used. They're yeah, they, no they longer. Canceled. So we can't I mean, just, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Because like once you cancel the credit, in fact, you've used the credit. Yeah. It's because, out of the market. 
Exactly. Because remember, I mean, especially in the regulated market, like hedge funds, uh, individuals, I mean, people are speculating. You can speculate in the same way in the voluntary market, but just not as liquid, right? It's just not, and it's not an exchange traded product as such. So yeah. it's more challenging to. Um, oh God, man, my head's spinning with just like the different. I can see why this is so fascinating to you because there's so many derivatives and aspects that can come out of this this world of voluntary credits. And I mean, my head's going towards like the sex appeal and marketing the sex appeal of certain credits over others and being able to to get a premium for them. And but all while, you know, understandably doing good. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I'll give you an example. A former partner of mine, you know, founded a has founded a company called Carbon Streaming Corp. I've, I've been to their website, it's private. You know, Justin Cochran and and you know, look at some of the stuff these guys are doing. And and they've entered the field here. They've, you know, kind of started down the path on these voluntary markets and that's just one example. I've been looking at some guys trying to tokenize credits a little mm. bit. I think a little bit too early for that because you need the verification of the standard. But the point is, this market is really dynamic. You have all of these companies. I mean, you know, hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars worth of demand and you're helping the environment and, so, and you're making yeah. money. And so it's really just a fascinating, dynamic and evolving market. Yeah. And it's equally a part of finance as it is a part of the marketing department to say, hey, no, this is where we're going to be investing. It's not, yeah. I mean, look, you've got BlackRock saying that we're not going to invest in you unless you adhere to these standards. You have funds saying if you don't offset your carbon footprint by such and such a date, we're not going to own your equity. So you have on the investor side, you have that kind of ultimatum. And then on the consumer side, people buying your product, you have people also saying like, it, it needs to be green. We want it to offset. You know, we'll pay. Would you pay? Like that's all getting worked out, and it take years to settle on who's paying. Ultimately, consumer pays. Like whether they pay by clicking the box or they pay in a different way. But we've just decided as a society, you know, not just in the West. By the way, I mean, look at China. They're developing their own regulated markets for carbon. I think globally, we've decided that it's something that needs to be done. And now we're at this moment where the market's developing and figuring itself out. How do you see this shaking out then with, for example, in Europe, the cost of a carbon credit is such that it's pushing potentially or arguably pushing companies out of Europe from a production standpoint. And do they go to developing countries? Do they go to China? And how does that work? How do we have a level playing field for carbon globally when the cost of production in one country is just, I mean, you just see moving to another and and where you've got lesser environmental restrictions. How is that going to play out? Well, look, whether it's the Paris Accord or any number of these agreements, you know, I would say that you have pretty strong consensus in Europe and North America around these climate goals and carbon goals. And so, mm-hmm. you know, shifting from France to Spain or something doesn't make any sense. And then you have, you know, China, who is also, by the way, an environmental thought leader globally on environmental policy, notwithstanding whatever the media says. Yeah. You know, the electric vehicle revolution, which is, you know, a fantastic thing for decarbonization, it's being driven by China. So you have China, who's also a thought leader in environmental policy. So I'm not so sure that just moving your business to quote unquote to China is going to make sense. And so I don't think that people are carbon shopping, as it were, at the moment. I don't think they're, they're shopping yeah. the jurisdictions around carbon. Could that happen in the future? Yeah, but it would be really easy because if you're, pick your country, if you're England, you could just say, well, you have to offset your product's carbon footprint to sell it into our market. And so you would be taxed like a duty, like an import duty, a carbon import duty, if you can't prove that you've offset your carbon footprint, right? 
Yeah, I see what you're saying. And that's how you'd start to offset that. Yeah. Ah, fascinating, man. What a cool uh, place to really be diving into in your interest there. You know what I want to do, though, is let's talk about what's happening in our markets. I mean, the last time we talked, we were just coming out of this kind of crazy V market dive and recovery. And now we're in this arguably inflationary environment that is going to impact both businesses and investors. And you see some commodities just going through the roof. What are you seeing? And I mean, if you were to apply your career experience to the future, what's in your crystal ball? The question is inflation transitory. Are we talking about transitory inflation, which is what the Fed in the States seems to be saying? Or are we talking about something more pernicious and longer lasting? I think the answer is it depends. You know, we shut down these factories. And so I think a lot of what you're seeing right now are the growing pains of, of restarting a global market. But that's kind of the perfect storm for basic material is you have underinvestment for the last decade in CapEx because of the last cycle and the overinvestment. You have a lot of discipline from these producers. And then you have a massive demand shock. And it's kind of the perfect storm for metals in particular. So you talk about metals. You talk about other things like lumber. You know, you had a bunch of DYI projects at home and you had some tariffs between Canada and the US. But in actual fact, there's no shortage of trees. It's a shortage of capacity at mills. So that, yeah. that one kind yeah. of clears itself out a lot quicker than copper. The transitory, you know, it, it takes yeah. a decade yeah. to make a copper mine. Right. Yeah. So I think I think it's gonna be case by case. Like you know, I was reading something that was really interesting saying that they're anticipating the potential for shortages of gasoline in the US this summer, not because of gas itself, but because the labor market is such that the truck drivers aren't coming back to work fast enough. And so the delivery mechanism will have failed. So I think a lot of the inflation is transitory, right? Because of the elasticity of markets and so on. But I think things like copper, it's not transitory because you have this shock, fine, fair enough. However, on top of that, you have this global decarbonization movement, which requires massive amounts of copper. Same can be said for nickel. You have that underinvestment. And so all you've done is heighten an already tight market. And you've probably brought forward some of the problems, which were kind of inevitable. Mm. And you know, I, I think, you will, yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, there are problems with wage inflation. And, you know, what is that going to mean for, you know, prices of all sorts of goods. But I think that when you print trillions of dollars, and by the way, in the US, there's 4 trillion more slated to come in, whether or not it comes in, let's see, how can you not have inflation? Like it just, you know, you have uh, people who didn't spend all this money on travel, they're going to spend on something else, they're going to go out and buy a new car. And I saw the other day that, you know, chips, there are 2.5 million less cars are going to be made because there's no chips that are available or not enough Hmm. chips. So I think it's a really complex case-by-case case kind of analysis that has to be done because some of this stuff, as I say, like with lumber, you build some mills, you change the tariff, and you're going to be okay. Yeah. Copper, you need to build a copper mine. Like, Let's talk about it in six years. And same with nickel and some of the other commodities. Yeah. So, and yeah, you know. I mean, even with iron ore and, and, and the fact, I mean, with the Biden administration and the amount of money that's going to be put into, as I understand, infrastructure and it can only have an upward effect on all prices that, you know, all commodities related to our everyday lives. I read a stat that something like 20% of the US money supply was printed in the last 24 months. Yeah, I've seen the same thing, right? Just like, did your jaw drop when you read that? Because I was just shocked. 
I mean, it's such like, I don't know the way out here. And Ray Dalio is really interesting. He talks about this a lot. I mean, think about this, you know, all the money printing in large part has been targeted at like kind of average Joe middle-class Americans, lower middle-class Americans with the payments. But, you know, I was reading this example. So in a place I'm from in Eastern Washington, a house is $250,000 18 months ago might be three hundred dollars or $400,000 mm-hmm. now. So if you didn't own a house and you didn't experience that $100,000 in value creation, guess what? Like your job doesn't pay you that much more. You're not getting a massive pay raise yeah. and you just got priced out of the housing market. And so I really worry that all these social issues that we're having in society are going to be even compounded by what we're seeing because inevitably people who own assets of all different types are going to benefit from this. And you know, people who don't have assets are going to miss out. And notwithstanding whatever they do with taxation, you're not going to be able to fill that gap very easily. And this is kind of digressing, but I think it's very complex for policymakers. And you know what we're seeing, ironically, the inflation is going to probably harm people. Yeah, that that who who, who, who yeah who who most need protected inside of society, right? Unfortunately, those that have not, who you know, even yeah. despite trying as hard as they could, are just not going to happen. Yeah, if you did nothing, if you owned the S and P and you didn't, you just did nothing. You know, you're up massively over a lot. You know, just, just think about owning any, you own a house, you're up. You own almost any kind of saleable, fungible asset, you're up. So anyhow, that's digressing. Mm. But I would just say that the commodities market has been underinvested in for over a decade. The big producers have had a lot of supply set discipline. And, you know, corn, all-time high yesterday, I think. You know, all sorts of these commodities are reaching these highs. But there are breaking points you know, in particular when it's relatively easy to substitute. But for some of these things, there's just no substitute. And those are the ones that the inflation is going to be less transitory. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. So many places we can go here because my mind's just spinning with ideas. But I just want to tie something back to carbon because I think it's pretty fascinating. And I watched a video of Robert Freeland recently talking about copper and how we are now into this shift and moving towards this green revolution and the amount of carbon that is going to be released from just mining alone and the production of copper in itself, it's, it's almost, does it offset the environmental goals we had of going and getting away from internal combustion engines kind of thing? And when you see this massive change in our, or you know, what will become our economies and our way of lives, how do you start to offset that carbon? And you know, I see the tie now, the tie back to cap and trade, and then also to the voluntary market where you can start to participate and say, yeah, I believe in this, but I have to also contribute to it. Look, there is no right answer here. It's all about trade-offs. I do think that burning coal and hydrocarbons is ultimately not as clean as you know some of these other solutions. I think recycling is going to become better. The battery technology is evolving. And, you know, there's going to be growing pains. I don't know. I kind of, I don't buy into the notion that carbon release from copper mining is worse than, you know, until we run out using hydrocarbons Mm. because ultimately you're going to run out, you have to make that switch. I don't really buy that argument. I I just haven't seen, but I do think that there's a lot that we can do. There's a lot of reforestation. There's a lot of low hanging fruit. And it might also be the case that we just have to change the way we live our lives and, you know, one of the things which is interesting about, for instance, autonomous driving, you know, maybe that's a shift in vehicle ownership, not to digress here, but, you know, maybe in the future, hmm. maybe in the future, you don't really own a car, right? You have a ride handling service if you live in a bigger city. And so, you know, 
everything you see, everything we do is just made up by people. There's not some like irrevocable rule and, you know, things can change and, and we're kind of only limited by our imagination. But if we decide that we care about the earth and having humans continue on as a species living here, we're going to have to change. And that might mean that we have to change the way that we live and that will be incremental. And I think that part of that will definitely be a move away from, from hydrocarbons towards something cleaner and hydrogen is going to be part of that. And hopefully as we go forward, there'll be more advanced technologies that we're not even talking about today. Yeah. I want to jump off kind of off the path here and and take you down a path of talking uranium. I've become very interested in uranium lately, and I do believe in nuclear energy as what part of the solution. What's your take? What do you see with the uranium market? Are we going to see something like we we saw in 06, 07? What are the market dynamics there? Yeah. So I would say what I see in uranium right now is a lot of the price move is based on all the physical purchases. So like what you have is I'm making up the number because it's very much specific to the equity, but you know, you have a lot of these companies trading at an implied price of $45 uranium, if you like kind of ran the nav. So they can raise money at $45 implied and then they can buy uranium at $30. So it's a great arbitrage, right? So I think if you look at all these financing, what you're seeing is the market is not moving up on demand from utilities which is what you would like to see. Instead, it's kind of moving up on demand from like physical purchases, which isn't to say that's bad. I think it's just a reality because is that material going to come back into the market? How is it going to come back in? I don't know. But I just I think that it's worth noting that when it's really going to go is when all the utilities start coming in and buying. And I don't think we've really seen that on any scale yet. So today, yeah. as I say, it's it's you know whether it's the news around Sprout acquiring UPC or you know a bunch of different folks are buying physical even in the last forty eight hours. I think that's what's driving the market. Now that doesn't mean it's not interesting because certainly uranium nuclear power is incredibly clean when you get it right. Yes, but you know there are mistakes, and I think those mistakes have a long memory in the public, and it's going to be kind of managing that perception around nuclear power and safety that will be critical to making sure that it's part of the baseload because you'd, you'd rather have a nuclear baseload than a coal baseload, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Wow. Interesting. I'm looking at time here, man. I want to make sure that uh, you can get back to all the things you got going. Something I'm always curious about with you is uh, what are you reading these days? Yeah. You know, I read this book recently by Javier Blast it's called The World is for Sale. It's kind of a the king of oil book. It's about trading, trading commodities, and, it, and it, you know it's pretty good. It's worth, it, especially if you're in, in the business in some form. And then I read another book, you know, the history of debt, which is kind of interesting. Just talking about, yeah, it, it, you know, and it's this guy's an anthropologist that wrote it. But once again, just talking about all these cycles. And then I've been reading a lot. I'll tell you, it's really worth doing. Is Ray Dalio. Who has some great books, but uh, he's been publishing these essays on LinkedIn. Uh, yeah, on LinkedIn, and I have a website as well. Kind of over the last six months or eight months, whatever it is, and the way that he thinks about cycles mm-hmm. is fascinating, and it's really worth reading them. It takes five minutes to read one of these things, ten minutes, and I think those are always great. How unique is Ray Dalio and his approach of these kind of these super cycles, if you will, and how he kind of, and the cycles within the cycles. Is he really a the thought leader on that? Or is that more common economic kind of views? And he's just... I think he's almost a professor. I don't, like, I don't know. I've not worked at Bridgewater, but I don't think you can 
trade around those cycles very easily because these cycles can be decades long. Right. And usually, you know, it's pretty easy, I think, to see what's happening. But what is almost impossible to predict is the catalyst for the change. So, you know, everyone can sit around and say, oh, you know, oh, everything, there's a bubble, there's this, there's that. Yeah, like that's true. But what's the catalyst for it to be something different? And, you know, getting that catalyst right is where these fortunes get made. And so, you know, what I would say about Ray Dalio's work is it's a lot, it feels academic, although it feels right, but actually applying it to a portfolio, unless you have like a 40 year time horizon, I just, I'm not sure how you do that, but the frameworks are interesting. You know, I would say the one thing about the market right now is everything is thematic. I mean, mm, yeah. whatever you're doing, you know, all of a sudden, all the psychedelic names are up and then they're down. It didn't matter what you own, as long as you own something. Sure. Some were up a little more than others, but it was happening and now it's not. Yeah, you I've know, seen that with helium right now. We, uh, yeah, it's up, yeah. right? Helium is, and then it's down. And so, and you know, maybe that's the sign of a bull market, but it, it does feel like no one owns stocks. They only rent them these days. Like, hmm. it, there's, you know, in, in fact, I think the only owners of stock are retail. Actually, my observation is retail people own stock. And no matter what the nonsense, no matter what someone's spinning, all the hedge funds are only renters of stock. And yeah. even a lot of the, the guys trading day to day are renters of stock. And, you know, what does that signal into the market? I'm not sure. But in this current climate where everything is driven by Fed speak and Janet Yellen hints at interest rate rises and the market sells off, you know, a percent and then it's back up because she said, just kidding. And so, uh, you know, like <laughs> it that, does that it by a tweet a or a meme. Yeah, exactly. And so um, everything feels very directional and thematic and it's challenging to kind of see through that. Huh. Yeah, no kidding. Final question for you, man, is um, from your perspective, you're invested and participate in a lot of companies and you've put a lot of money to work. What advice do you have for those CEOs and IR pros who are navigating these markets? You know, I think if you, you're in our business, the mining business, I think you need to tap into the theme that's relevant to you. If you're a copper company, you need to be telling the story of the Green Revolution. You need to be talking about decarbonization. If you're a gold company, you probably need to be telling a story around inflation and, and what's going to happen. You know, and I think you know, it's important to get the project right and have the right management team and figure out the geology. I mean, all that is important. But to get the incremental non-specialist, I think you have to convince them why they should even care at all. And to do that, I think you need to really paint that thematic picture for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Awesome, man. Anthony, any final thoughts for the audience? I guess, what was the Citigroup note right before the crash? You know, you got to dance while the music's playing. I mean, the music's playing. If you need to raise money, hurry up and raise it. You know, you got to dance while the music's playing and it's playing right now. And, you know, it probably is going to go for a while longer as long as they keep printing money. But on the other side of this, when it stops, it's going to be nasty and the market's going to be closed for a while. Yeah. Wow. Very interesting, man. I always enjoy our conversation. So thanks for coming on. Thanks a lot for having me, but I love coming on chatting and uh, hit me up anytime. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.